welcome back to the Research VR Podcast, everyone. The podcast behind the science and design of virtual reality. I am your host, Osbal Abanyan, and with me today is special guest, Deb Mayers from the University of Glasgow, who is doing a master's in computer science and uh, has completed her master's in ancient cultures. And today we'll be talking about all things history, culture, um, photogrammetry, preservation and art, like a little bit of history, art, and uh, and everything in between. So hello, hello, Deb. Hi. <laughs> and uh, of course, beaming in from Germany, we have Peter Lekoff. Yeah, well, hello. I'm sitting here at 30 degrees of Celsius in a green screen room. My face is dripping sweat. I am in VR and I'm ready to hear the story from Deb. <laughs> nice. Sounds like <laughs> ideal conditions. Yes. So, Deb, before we started recording, um, how uh, how did you, I guess, yeah, how did we end up here in this room? Oh, um, it's kind of a mess. So, you guys are basically my heroes. I was searching online for VR, and your podcast was one of the first things that showed up, and I was like, oh, great, something I can listen to as I'm walking my son in the nursery and coming back to work, and I was like, this is fantastic, and then I found Enter VR, and um, I think some, some one other VR podcast, and I was like, okay, great, so you basically got me started on this sort of virtual reality trip. <laughs> yes, that's very good. You're also in our Discord channel, right? I am, yes. You can find me, I think I'm the only Latin name. Um, oh. X and Helium means of fit. I guess it's fitting your that's degree, right? Yeah, it's, it's some, something from my, in my past. It means um, nothing comes from nothing, essentially. In vivo vivito, or how do you say in Latin, I believe in wine? Like in vivo vivito, <laughs> something like that? And we, we know where he talks, ah, yes. in wine we trust. Yes. <laughs> Arian from, from many one. Do we all just like throw out Latin phrases? No, uh, no, no. Pro, pro bono, maybe. <laughs> and uh, so, speaking of pro bono, we do have a Patreon page if you guys want to help us keep it going. Maybe, maybe we should try to put the Patreon uh, in the thing beginning in the front of the episode. Yeah, instead of at the end after we've said goodbye. Um, well, let, let's say if sense. anyone complains, uh, please complain on our Discord channel. Join us and tell us. You know, don't say it in the beginning. That way, you either join our Discord or you support us. You have the choice. That's right. Um, so coming back from so that, Deb, coming back to Deb, yeah. Yeah, I guess kind of walk us through a little bit of like how you ended up in uh, in the field that you did. Um, I mean, you can talk a little bit about the backgrounds and the and the uh, you know the 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 things that you're really interested into and and how that all tied into VR. Okay, it's a very long story. So I did my um, my undergraduate in plastics and in business, and my junior year I took a class which sort of had some virtual archaeology in it. So they were really looking at reconstructing past sites, um, but a site that we know existed and we know about the actual buildings and things that are found there, so like the Parthenon. Um, and I don't really remember much of that class. Mm. But then my next, my next year, I had a class on... Um, it was we were studying the Villa Santa Maria, which is a maritime villa in Sardinia, and half of it has gone to the sea. And I really thought, oh, well, this would be perfect use for virtual archaeology. It's sort of having the scanning of the site um, pretty much every year to see how much the coast is going up into the land, and then also looking at it and thinking, can we sort of recreate the part of the villa that's missing? And then after that, I graduated. I had the worst job of my life at a supermarket and the best job of my life at a behavioral economics research lab. And inside that lab, I got to spend some time at, um, it, it was a game studio, Epic Games, um, with one of their conferences was on UX and sort of like game design. And inside of that, I got to try VR for the first time. <laughs> they were working on Bullet Train. And so I... I the guy was like, oh, well, if you've never tried VR before, come up and um, be the first person to try this. And I was like, I've never tried it before, but I'm completely freaked out by people. So it's like, I, I can't try it first. <laughs> so as soon as everyone left the room and he was the only one left, I was like, hey, I've never tried VR before. Can I try your game? And he was like, 
Yeah, and I was like, okay, but just don't be mad at me because I don't understand gaming. And so like, I was standing there with my um, with the uh, touch controllers, and I was like, I have no idea how to hold these. I don't know how to use the buttons. And then like the grabbing came naturally, but everything else, I was like, I don't know where the A button is. I don't know how. I don't know how to do anything. And he was just like, you can grab those bullets and throw them back at the people. And I was like, oh. I'm just going to stand here and watch people shoot at me. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so it was it was a really great introduction and I, after I came out of that I was like okay I can definitely see using this in my own research and sort of studying the past and showing it to people and have them get a sense of maybe what the past would have been like. Um, then I took a master's degree in ancient cultures where I was really wanting to focus on modeling archaeological sites. It didn't really happen. I had to do a dissertation on um, two different cultures so I picked I picked a Roman site on Hadrian's Wall, which had multiple cultures inside of it. Um, and then I looked at the religious landscape of this site called Carbroth. And Carbroth is a really interesting site just because it had um, th three different shrines to three different gods. So they had the um, Welt Coventina over on this side here. And then there was a spring that ran out here. And then there was um, the Temple of Mithras, and then right in front of the Temple of Mithras, like maybe five feet in front of it, there was this um, shrine to the Nymphs and the Guinness Logi. And we have no idea why they would have put this shrine here, and we have no idea what sort of the entire fort looked like and how it acted. But it, it was a really good experience in trying to say, like, okay, so we know these sites existed, and there was a bathhouse found in the 1800s, and that existed somewhere along the shrine. Um, and we thought, okay, since we know all this stuff existed, why not just try and model it? Because I'm not a great modeler, so it's not going to look realistic. And I think that was a perfect introduction into putting it into a 3D model and then also into virtual reality. And now for my next dissertation right now, I'm going to be doing simulating the Temple of Mithras on Karabroth and do multisensory or do multisensory effects, enhance user presence, experience, um, and their engagement with the experience. You're one of the few guests who, um, you know, joined the first time big screen and just uh, naturally grabbed a pen and started drawing around in space. It's actually quite fascinating. I, I think you have to sort of, because I'm, I'm not good with no, but it's, it's uh, the actual plan of the site. Exactly, it's pretty good. Um, Speaking of history, so we had one episode about uh, Arc VR or no Sci Arc, I think, right? Uh, this uh, mm -hmm. scanning of digital heritage, and it was like the first time when my mind was connecting history that I'm technically kind of laugh with. It's a kind of laugh. Yeah, I, 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 I like history as a hobby, right? But I never was connecting it to any digital means and to any digital tools. How was it to study uh, history? Was there any connection to VR, to modeling, to 3D, or was it all paper and shovels? Oh, okay. Um, well, I am in our, um, I'm originally a classicist, and I, so classicists what, what are mean? very much, um, so they study the text of the ancient Greeks and Roman. Um, they're very much, we'll say, pedantic about how they use their words and what the texts say. Um, there is this sort of divide between classicists and archaeologists. Mm. So they don't really like, um, they think that going by the text themselves is better than like digging up things and trying to interpret them. And I think that's a really strange divide because texts are also material yeah. culture and we interpret them how we want, but yeah, that's, yeah, that is a very interesting distinction to make. I mean, I I think I understand the approach, but like the, the we don't you run into the same problems with both recovering old texts than the same problem as recovering you know old um, destroyed buildings. Like you know, there's a lot of things that are destroyed, a lot of text that's destroyed that's that we don't have access to. Similarly with archaeology, there's a lot some of things libraries. that we don't have access to. Yeah, some libraries maybe just maybe. Burned yeah. How, so how does that how does that work? Um, so I think it's a little bit different. So if you look at the text of, let's say, Cicero, because he's so well known, um, you can see sort of like 
how he wrote inside this almost typical, um, inside what he wrote inside this thing. But then when you see a shard of pottery, which in the field usually looks like this instead of like that, um, how are you going to interpret this as this top piece, this bowl? So I think mm. there's a little bit of difference, but and it really goes down to personal preference. And I, I'm not really well qualified to talk about. Sure, but then you discovered <laughs> VR, right? So then you discovered VR, yeah. and it was kind of, I guess, very emotional because my first time VR was also very emotional. I guess for everyone, it's like, well, I'm actually in space, I can shoot around, and your experience that you tried, particularly bullet train definitely one of the more engaging ones and then you decided okay i need to combine it with my history degree was it like the, the moment where your brain clicked yeah how did, how did yeah that... i think it, so because i was so interested in 3d modeling and i was just thinking okay well you can have a 3d model and you can put it on this flat surface inside of the museum and have people spin around it it's really not engaging at all um a lot of museums do it and it, it is engaging to a point but it's not that great to sort of see the um the object itself because objects are they're very sensorial right they have um texture they have i mean if you want to smell them i guess you can do that or lift them whatever oh boy but they're not just objects inside of a glass case and i think that's what really brought me into this sort of like i felt when i was playing bullet train that i had a gun in my hand and that it was like recoiling or Sort of had that haptic feeling, and I was like, okay, this is great. We can sort of use this as a way to convey the past. And I think what I really thought of that was, what if I could completely get rid of my touch controllers, use my hands, and actually pick up objects that have textures and weight, mm -hmm. and kind of feel that, but also see this new sort of simulated world. And how did cool. it continue? And at this time, sorry, and at this time, were you aware of like photogrammetry and and kind of the tie-in with VR? there not at all not at all mm. uh, so i think for photogrammetry i got started on that maybe six months ago ish mm. to get inspired it, by azat's work um, no actually it was i i have met a couple of oh, sorry i didn't mean to sound rude there. um no I no met a couple it, of i was who do. Azat shaking is always my head so humble. At, at peter for putting yeah, me in I know. a fucking position like <laughs> he doesn't like me to mention it i mean your rooms are great it's just that i didn't really see them at that time <laughs> um it was just it was some meeting that i had with some people at a heritage company that does um virtual reality visualizations and they had said oh well if you're going to be trying to go into this line of work make sure you do photogrammetry and i was like i have no clue what this is so they said oh photo why um photo scan <laughs> yeah it was they had to spell it out like four times for me, and I was like, okay, I think I finally got what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's the technology, as far as I understand it, came from archaeology, right? The structure, a lot of it was used in archaeology, but would you say it's something that is widely known at all in, in the space um, by academics, by professors, or even by the students, or is that still, or is that something that's like happening uh, kind of more recently? I think it depends on which field you're in and then sort of what university you're at. Um, mm. I would definitely say inside of plastics, um, we didn't really talk much about any sort of technologies unless someone wanted a website created. And then we'd be like, oh, go find someone who does digital humanities and make this website mm. database for your work. And I think that's pretty much where that line ended sometimes. And then in archaeology, more people were like, oh, yeah, let's use GIS and let's use 3D modeling and photogrammetry. But not all of the people inside of archaeology were like that. Fair. Um, and I think this is an interesting transition to what, some this conversation that we had on, on the Discord channel a few weeks back. Uh, so... I guess to, to give a little bit of a background, um, I think a month or two ago, Cyark, like we just mentioned earlier, they announced their partnership with Google and the fact that mm. the uh, Google Google Arts and Culture Institute were partnering with Cyark to basically like take a lot of their their recent scans or their archived kind of work on archiving these you know at risk cultural heritage sites. 
and you know basically making it more available for people to to experience which is i think a a, a cool you know in partnership that's that's happening especially since like i think they told us they have like three to four hundred places that are archived that like you know they've only yes. published maybe three or four of them and they're huge recent vr app and they're really yeah. huge that was a problem i guess that's where google steps in right and can provide the server infrastructure because those were literally terabytes of data right but what so what happened is you know they announced it uh, it, uh you know on the announcement um there's a bbc bbc tweets out an article about it they say google's 3d scans aim to preserve historical sites and uh this archaeologist jens uh, notroff from um he's, he's also actually from berlin he says uh let's he tweets he retweets it and he says so oh. let's try again let's try again all together documentation is not preservation documentation is not preservation and he like repeats that you know five or six times um and he like this tweet really went viral i think it's probably like the, the biggest thing he's ever tweeted um and then actually it's funny he has, he has a second tweet he's like great the one tweet i will be remembered by is for a semi-professional tongue-in-cheek jibe about terminolo terminology after a late friday night balcony beer that's funny this is uh that's the consequences of yeah exactly <laughs> like sometimes your your jokes can be the, the interpreted and the yeah. the most th different ways possible but so i anyway i posted this to our volumetric channel on discord and you know kind of, kind of just to point people to to this tweet and the, and the fact that there's a lot of people kind of like agreeing to this um to the sentiment and you were the first one person that kind of commented on it and you said very much in agreements with that though documentation is not preservation most digital humanities projects die and are not usable within 10 years i think the minimum time period is usually five years uh, that a project must be kept running preservation of a site is different um so let's let's talk a little bit about that because it's definitely I hadn't made that distinction in my head. I think there's you know I've I've kept talking about you know being able to capture somewhere in uh, in 3D and then in time, you know, in 5 to 10 years being able to roll back time, you know, literally like time travel back to what it was like in Armenia in 2017. I thought that was that was going to be a cool thing, but I guess it's interesting that archaeologists almost reject that notion of like Let's not let's not mistake, you know, um, archiving for actual preservation. Um, so, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that. OK, um, I think it's very much a terminology thing. So when you think of preser preserving a site, you think of that physical site and actually preserving it to the state it is today. Um, and when you think of and when you're capturing it sort of either by laser scanning, remodeling inside of a website, anything like that, um, that's more of just documenting and archiving and sort of preserving this digital format of the site. Um, and I think you could preserve that, but we've only had these sort of, like if you look at VR especially, we've only had it for maybe a span of what, 10 years if that. So we can't really say anything about the preservation. I have a contra-argument. Uh, so in a sense, we talked in one of our previous episodes that I hope will be published here before this interview about how we could preserve digital art. But um, I think when we speak about, um, for example, the episode we had about with SciArc, it was about capturing heritage that will be destroyed at some point eventually. So let's say the Syrian um, war that was still going on, some heritage was destroyed because it was captured we still can preserve it in a way, right? So, I mean, we cannot trust that we can keep everything that is around us for eternity. I mean, there might be a meteor coming down or a bomb or, you know, just a gas leakage and it might be gone forever, but the digital files or the digital scan, as long as we keep it machine readable and openable will be technically forever, right? Well, I think maybe. Um, so if you look at Palomyra, so that's one of the sites I actually wanted to do three models of. Um, and I'm so glad that someone is going to be doing a sort of VR game with it. I think, I think they are. Um, the ARC project. And um, one of the sad things I saw when some of the bombs were finished um, was this article about, like, the statue just kind of being decapitated and laying on the ground. And I was like, that's kind of, it's such a sad thing. Like, don't think we can necessarily say, 
we are preserving the site at this point in time um, because sites do persist, right? So like mm. um, if that site's been going on for thousands of years. And if you think about it, it's still having this history written onto it. And I don't think, I think it'd be kind of a disservice mm-hmm. to us if we would just stop and try and preserve it as it is now because it's having this, it, it's going through this turmoil and this history. And I, I don't want to get too political, so I'm trying to back away from things. But um, because it's still living and it's still having a story written about it, but I don't think you can necessarily say you're preserving it as it was when it was scanned. So what's with uh, restoration, right? So if I get your point correctly, you would say that the history of this object is also that it has been involved in this bombing and it's getting destroyed. And in a sense, that's also part of the history of this whole onsite. But there is still um, restoration going on in museums, right? There is an old painting. We try to restore it in the way it used to be. And in a sense, the digital representation is the perfect restorated way, right? I'm just asking because I actually have no idea. Okay. So I'm just throwing an idea. So I want to sound cocky. So this is a really... I mean, I, I don't know if I understand your entire point, but right. So when you find um, an artifact, I'm going to, if there's a bull sling scene, I'm not an artist, so I'm sorry about this. Um, mm. There's a bull, and then here's, he's supposed to be the other way around, actually. That's his tail, that's his head. Um, and here's Mithras slaying the bull, mm-hmm. um, killing it. Poor guy. Deborah is painting in between, (laughs) and uh, we will have a video component to this podcast that you guys can check out on YouTube. So, refer to the link in the uh, in the show notes. What? There's like a snake and a dog. It is. So actually, with this, with this, this is um, the cult statue of the um, the uh, the Mithras cult, which is at Housestead and currently in the Great North Museum, Hancock in um, Newstead, or Newcastle in England. Um, but what we're actually missing from this is this bit here. Mm. And then I think like this bit here was missing, this bit here, and I think like bits up here, probably even bits of his face and arms and stuff were missing. So as it stands in the museum, it looks perfect, right? It, it has little cracks in it, and you can sort of see some of the restoration of it but it was still missing so many parts. And one of the more famous Mithraeum steps, Mithra's step, I can't move wrong. Uh, let me erase it. One of the more famous like, cult statues. Mm-hmm. It's Mithra's slaying the bull. So again, this is an actual statue and not sort of a relief. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mithra's up here slaying the bull. Um, and we're missing, I think, part of his head, part of the bull's head, and like quite a bit of the statue. I would say maybe a third of it is missing, if not more. And I think inside of that, there's a big problem that museums are also telling lies to people. Oh, yes. And then I completely went off on a tangent. I forgot your question. I'm sorry. So, um, l- let's say we find a statue, for example, the ancient Rome statues of humans. Um, they apparently have been colored. Uh, when they were actually, you know, yeah. during that time displayed. But we still have this weird picture of those white statues, you know, standing in those nice positions. Would it actually be, you know, they kind of stand that way. I'm showing it to the camera, so don't worry. I usually don't do it. Um, and, um, yeah, well, should we, like, restore them? <laughs> or should we preserve uh-huh. them? Or, I, I mean, what is the best way to actually show it or use it for history and for you know, museum purposes. Okay, so in an ideal sense, I would say the best way to preserve it is to have the statue as it is. Um, I think with Winkelmann, who is a German um, archaeologist, classical art, I, I, th- I can't remember what he studied, but um, he basically hated that ancient statues were colorized and polychromatic. Mm. And so coming off of that now we all think that these statues are very beautiful and austere and they're just these great works of art but in reality they would have been completely ugly and <laughs> thrown around color and i think in an ideal world you would have a cast of that and color the cast in and then you would have um the statue as it is now where it's because that way you don't really ruin what is of it and 
if you think about like um, Arthur Evans, who did reconstruction of Knossos, and um, that's kind of what people usually think about when they think of reconstructions, is this, he sort of did the Palace of Knossos in the way he wanted to, and not using the archaeology and like the um, how traditional builders would have made this Minoan palace. And I think when you do that sort of thing, you're firstly you're taking the original artifact and you are changing it in a way that probably won't be changed again. And that's not great, but I think that's where digital stuff comes into play, right? So like I can make oh can can we do the house thing? The, yeah, yeah. Exactly um, that point. How? While you're pulling it up, I uh, will quickly ask another question. Um, so I'm a big fan of okay. Dan Carlin, right? Maybe you know him. He's a podcaster and um, he does this great show about history. history. Exactly. It's really good. And in a way, the way he, for example, portrays the First World War uh, was very emotional. So when I w was reading uh, during school and also later certain documents about the First World War, Yes, they're very emotional, they're very touching, but the way how Dan Carlin was talking about it made me like really shudder and actually imagine myself sitting in those trenches and I actually kind of really had for a second this idea how horrible it was for the people, but this is not a very neutral way to tell it, right? So he was through the medium of audio podcast basically presenting a picture of the war in my head that is a very, you know, selected view and it's very horrible and it's very good what he did in a sense, but This is not classical history, right, in a sense, because classical history would actually, you know, take over the facts, describe certain things, and you have to, you know, to interpret it yourself. And how much should VR, you know, interpret things for you? When we think, for example, about uh, how is this game called uh, where you're diving into your past uh, uh, Assassin's Creed, right? Assassin's Creed is also, in a sense, an interpretation mm. how people used to live. But it's a great tool also to use it in history classes, right, because you actually can engage children. and The question is whether, or the question is when we use VR and photogrammetry and other tools that are digital for actually, you know, pull, putting some life into history or actually showing it digitally, how much interpretation is there allowed to still call it history and not just, you know, an art project that builds upon of history uh, pieces? So how far can, can you interpret things? Uh, I'm going to actually just ask you really quick. Mm -hmm. Do you think that history is ever at a point not interpreted? Absolutely not, because mm. history is written by the one who is winning the battle, right? So I think that also kind of comes into play. So, I mean, even when you're doing archaeology, you're sort of doing this interpretation as it stands. Like you dig up some sort of artifact, and then you take that artifact and you record its physical properties. And then you go ahead and you say, okay, well, how did they use this in the past? And at that point, you're kind of relying on this expert's knowledge and their interpretation of that. And I think when you're talking about listening to something of history in a podcast form, I think that's really interesting because it also does a lot with um, ancient senses, right? So like roughly 10% of people, give or take, were literate in the ancient world. And so pretty much everything they heard was, or everything that they knew about text was from hearing it. Absolutely. And I think when they heard it, it was also interpreted by whoever's reading it. I mean, okay, this is me being very jaded, but mm. when I have a long text to read, I don't read it word for word. So I wonder Spanish. how many words got lost in translation right. Um, right. when they're sort of standing on this platform and speaking to people. Um, I have a... Uh, in terms of going back to both the Greek and Roman like sculptures, I'm pretty sure for a fact that the Greek uh, the Greek statues were painted, and um, I, I hadn't heard that the, the Roman statues were as well. Um, and and I went to a really interesting exhibit in the um, the Legion of Honor, which is this museum in San Francisco, kind of unknown actually. It's like off on a on a big hill, probably one of the most beautiful museums I've I've been to around here. And they held a whole exhibit on ancient uh, Roman and, and Greek art that was, some of it was, you know, reconstructions and, and like you said, casts that were colored. Um, one of the coolest exhibits that I did see there was a, um, I don't I guess I don't, you can kind of describe it as like a 2.5D painting where, you know, there's depth or things that they, it's not full one-to-one -one scale, but like they, 
the the sculpt it's a painting that actually is like kind of a sculpture and it and it points out a little bit um and it didn't have any color but they did have they were doing some projection mapping that every Ooh. 5 seconds they were projection mapping the the colors onto the the painting and then it and then it fades away and then you see it back to you know the marble um the marble the painting or the sculpture that it was i thought that was like a really really brilliant way of kind of at least giving you an experience of what the original piece looked like and um and also not by by not really trying to fool you and taking thinking you know this is what it is this is this is exactly what it's looked like for the past 2000 years but you know, there there was something really cool that they were doing there, using technology to like keep, stay true to how the piece itself is, but also um, what, uh, but also like realizing, you know, what we want to experience what things were at least to get an idea. Um, what do you, what do you think about kind of uh, methods like that? I really like them. Um, so one of uh, Stuart Jeffries, he's a lecturer at the Glasgow School of Art, and he one of his papers that I know him from is that digital means don't necessarily recapture the aura of an object mm. and I think that's a really important way of trying to still keep that aura of it and I think if you look at like the Temple of Mithras at, in London they sort of do um, it's light effects as well like that and it's I think it's a great way to sort of show like okay here's how it could have been but then every if you say every five seconds it flashes again, and it could then do some sort of other reinterpretation of colors, or it could do something else with it. And that kind of helps show that there's this multiplicity of ideas, and we don't really know exactly what things look like. Mm. Um, it's actually a good point. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. I was recently in a museum that was here near the city I'm living in, Osnabrück, and it's some kind of um, discovery of an ancient fight between the Germanians, the Germanians and the Roman um, legion, and they kind of mimicked um, the battlefields that they're still trying to interpret. So everything in that museum is, in a sense, not necessarily, um, you know, the, the truth, and they also say it, but they kind of try to interpret from the findings because a lot of stuff after the battle was stolen by the Germanians or took away because they wanted to use it. But they mimicked the battle through marbles. So you're standing in front of a huge desk has glass on top of it, and below there, there are this paths that apparently they think um, the Roman actually had to walk. And you push a button, there's a lot of marbles actually rolling, and you see how they were, you know, rolling slowly into this trap where the Germanians were attacking them. So they're not necessarily projecting, you know, the real people walking, but it's kind of a very nice approximation on how it could have happened, right? And I guess that's a very interactive element of museums, and museums are becoming more and more interactive. So... This is also, in a way, a good approximation, right? Yeah, I think that's actually a really cool way of doing things. So one of my favorite museums is at Vindanisa. I've never been there, but I read a book about it. Um, mm. And what they did was they sort of recreated this um, gateway that would have been there. Ooh. But instead of making it look like an ancient gateway, they covered it in glass. Uh -huh. And then you have sort of the archaeological site underneath it and you have again glass oops sorry my hand glass tracking um my husband was tracking there uh, and you have sort of the archaeological remains underneath glass here and you can look down into it i think that's such a fantastic way of sort of showing like what you think and how you can interact with the site and i think if you could see sort of like this sort of progression of people down this pathway you can sort of you can sort of use your mind's eye yes. to look at it, and it, it's just great. Mm, I had this weird experience where I was one time in Israel, and it was, I think, Lekko or some other city, and there was like a tunnel below the city that is from the temple year. So when the temple year, so was, you know, knights who used to be these religious people searching for uh, the Holy Grail, they actually created this tunnel below the city, and when you walk through this tunnel, you end up on another part of the city. It was so mind-blowing for me. Because you going through that, it's like really rainy, it's kind of wet, and you really can imagine how people with a torch were walking through it. You have to even, you know, duck yourself because at some point of this cave or this tunnel is kind of not very narrow and you have to, you know, squeeze yourself in. Could VR do the same? Or could you, through digital media, give me the same impression that I had while actually walking through it? Or do you think it's not possible? 
Yes and no. Um, so I think you can recreate some of the effects, but I think being there physically in that space and oh, no. you ducking and then you smelling this musty smell, I, I'm assuming, I don't know what it smelled like, but that's something you can't necessarily recreate at the moment in sort of most people's homes. And it, it's kind of like a void thing, where the void is the, I don't know what they call themselves, like four mm, Yes. Ultra immersive, something sure. like that. Super ultra duper sure. immersive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what they say, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so where you have like this sort of mist effect or whatever. And I think you're going to be missing that. And you're also going to be missing this sort of going from daylight and then into the darkness. And you're, as you're walking down, I mean, you're feeling each step and that's and, and your body inside the space. And I think. VR can't necessarily recreate that at the moment, but it can try its best. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone. Maybe, maybe before the diff, the DK the DK one. No. DK one. CV, the, before the Rift and yeah, before the Rift and the Vive came out, like people were making. I kept hearing people make the argument in terms of like virtual tourism and like. Oh like, yes, things that we're gonna replace real actually needing to go in real life and do, um, and in certain ways perhaps you know, in essence it did. Like we're sitting in a virtual room having a virtual podcast together, um, and whereas that's replaced you know three plane tickets to get together in a room, and uh, yeah, similarly with Skype or VR, whatever. Um, but I don't know if any, I, if if people are making the argument that like this is the replacement for the real life um my i guess my understanding and and my like mission uh, and my thinking behind like this armenia project that i've been working on with realities io is that and this is something that became even more apparent when i was there uh david uh that you know the ceo of realities when we were when we were at these sites these are two to three thousand year old you know sites that all these tourists kids whatnot just running around and like like actually touching the walls the, touching the, mm -hmm. the everything that's built out of stone um and david was telling me that like the oils on your skin are just completely destroying um the 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 sites themselves any any sort of rock you know over a couple hundred years that deteriorates very very quickly um, and it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, Armenia uses these as, as important touristic sites and historical cultural landmark sites. And, 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 and in a lot of ways, you know, that's the reason why you, you want to go to Armenia is to like go out of the city and go to these ancient places and, and actually have a chance to explore them. And, 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 and seriously, there, mm -hmm. I think that the going to those places and like spending six to seven hours, like scanning these places was probably one of my favorite things that I did in all my life. Um, and you get to experience those. Uh, but, but he was telling me that, you know, within a few hundred years, some of these sites, the way they aren't being regulated really aren't going to be either. They won't be the same or they just literally will like <laughs> be destroyed. Um, you know, what's ironic, which kind of put a little bit more importance to it. So, yeah. As ironic part about it is somehow is that, you know, in a few million years, the sun will just burn down the whole earth, right? And in a sense, um, nothing is eternal, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's terrible that it's getting destroyed, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm totally undecisive if I would, you know, argue for, you know, keeping some kind of fences so the children cannot, you know, not walk around it and experience it or whether you should just but open it up. Here. So let's let's take that uh, you know argument to, to ad absurdum, right? Like uh, at what point, at what time frame is it access acceptable or not? If that yes. if that destruction was going to happen over the next ten years, you know, should we allow people to do it, or is it going to happen no. over the next hundred years? Should we still allow it, or in over the next ten thousand years? I think you know if we're if we're planning for our future generations, like what what's the cutoff that is like an acceptable form of like something surviving? For that long um and i don't really know nothing I, I don't have i know nothing about preservation but um maybe i mean maybe you can give us your opinion deb um i think that's a very touchy subject and you can fall on lots of sides and and the spectrum and i think so personally as someone who had never seen an archaeological site before i was so 23 um i 
like the idea of being able to run around them and step on the stone and sort of try and think, okay, if I'm standing here, can I see that monument in the distance? And, and yes, it does ruin the sites and it does have problems, but then I think that also depends on where you're at. So like Hadrian's Wall, because I only know about Britain and Roman archaeology, had this picture of a lot of people like um, walking on the wall. And this is a World Heritage Site. And someone had posted on Twitter, like, it was something that, it was for a tourism thing. It said, like, come and walk the wall. And someone had posted, hey, can you get this picture down? Like, you're not supposed to be stepping on the wall. It is a heritage site. And it finally got deleted or something from, it's probably still on the internet somewhere. Mm. But I think that's a, it's, it's a really interesting point. But then if you think back 2,000 years ago when people, people were here and walking along the wall, would they want you to still be walking on their piece of exactly. um, ground that they laid? Or would they would they say, no, you can't be on here because it, it's so ancient? And I think that's kind of, I, I have mixed feelings. Yeah, <laughs> so we all do. It's definitely a tough, to tell you. it's totally tough. And like, you know, being there to experience these places, I think was, so important for me cult like to be able to i mean i i it was almost like a spiritual experience to be able to to be there and 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 experience these places essentially the same way that the people that built them did i think that's a, mm -hmm. such a awesome one-to-one -one connection um to sit down you know in the same places that they were doing and 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 like sing in the churches and like you know hear the you know you can imagine that like blocking those off and just having a virtual uh, tour through it is maybe maybe it's in our future, but like it's it's not nowhere near mm -hmm. as interesting. Um, but uh, but I guess you're in England, right? The Stonehenge is totally blocked off. You can't like go near it. Um, like <laughs> what's I don't know? Is it is it impactful to like stand on the outside and like look at it through binoculars or like oh, I don't know? Can you fly a drone around it at least? Like I want to fly a freaking <laughs> I want to fly my drone. <laughs> Actually, that's well, a whole, I have no idea how. Sorry, that's a whole other subject, and 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 I'm actually a huge. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of um, consumer drones for the reason that like I don't want to ruin. I don't want people ruining other people's experiences of beautiful and awesome sites, and mm -hmm. and especially those sites being in nature. And even though I was in Armenia flying drones to to scan these places, we were extremely aware and completely tried to minimize as much as you know disturbance as we could and that's why like installing like quiet quiet propellers on the drones is one thing or flying really high and, and using bigger cameras um so yeah drones i think even though i'm like a huge huge drone guy i'm i'm not very not very excited about i think um, what what you mean uh, is uh, you don't want i think you don't want a world where like every tourist has a drone like selfie sticks that flies around so the same way as we are being mm -hmm. somehow interrupted by, you know, selfie sticks right now, sometimes you don't want to be at a, you know, heritage and there's like 20 or 150 of those, you know, selfie stick like drones flying around and bumping into each other and like trying to get the best angle. Like you have at concerts, oh, my phone, I want to photograph the right, person, right? right? Just experience right. it. Right. So I guess that's like the worst case. But or what's the, actually about holding, holding up an iPad? Yes. Oh my gosh. I watched once a concert on an iPad and I was so close to just smashing it on the person's head because I was observing how she deleted Angry Birds to make more ugly photos of the same angle. But I have another point. What's with churches that are bombed? So in Germany, you have churches that are bombed and they kept it destroyed. Yeah. So you walk in and you see uh, basically not the history of the church, but the history of the war, right? So in a sense, wait, wait, wait. there's a... We're on the the Stonehenge, but let's let's get back to that because yes, yes, I'd love to yes, talk about that yeah. for sure. Let's come back yes. to the Stonehenge. She, yes. So Deborah here has painted us a three D. Tell tell us what you painted here. So this is Stonehenge because we said Stonehenge, so I, I was thinking, well, Stonehenge is sort of in the middle of nowhere, and you have the visitor center over here that you can get to by bus or by car. Um, and I mean, if you're like a lot of people that I know inside the UK, you don't have your own car. Yes. Um, so you take the bus here, and then the in, inside the visitor center they have a little museum, and then they have a car or buses that transport you like a mile or something to the beginning of the Stonehenge, and then you can walk sort of around the path, but you can't get inside of it until certain festivals and um mm. there are Celtic festivals 
which is like the, um, the, the first day of spring, the first day of winter. Um, and it, it's only during the solstice period that you can sort of go inside it here. And you can sort of, because I think that what they're trying to do is kind of try and re-experience what maybe mm. what had been there, what the significance of the site is. But also if you look at Stonehenge, you have a ton of archaeology going all the way around here. So like this Stonehenge is going back to Neolithic times. And I think that's what makes it really fascinating. Um, we have no idea what it's about, right. but it's really fascinating. And if you were to have drones flying over it, um, first, I think in the UK at least, it's illegal to do so unless you have some sort of permit. Um, and I think drones are a little bit less evasive right. than people, I would say. Right. So I don't... I don't know where I would fall so in terms of the festivals and the, the spe specific times that you can go within the Stonehenge, that, would you say that's a good way of minimize, like both keeping it open for people that actually really care about these places to go and, and, and to be able to re-experience uh, history, but also minimizing the amount of damage that we're doing to these places? Or, uh, or are you even under, you know, would you even say that you, the damage itself is actually... Is a is a part is is part of that history, and is it, there's almost no way to really like try and preserve someone something. Um, I heard you kind of almost going around that subject a little bit earlier. Yeah, so I think in a certain way, because these sites are so old, eventually they're going to be damaged, right? I, right. I think, um, and and for some reason, for the Winter solstice, so the um, summer winter, whatever these festivals were, it's it's interesting concept, but I also don't know how much success they have. I don't know what people do when they go inside of it. I mean, I've never been able to attend one, and I'm, I I don't know a lot about Celtic studies, and so I don't really know what was happening there. But I think yes, there, it, it's a way to manage it, but it's also it's still really sad when you go there and you can't walk right up to the stone. Yeah. yeah. Well, you should go to Armenia because we have an older Stonehenge called Karahunj. And it's, uh, I believe, it's not Neolithic. It's like Bronze Age. It's down Whoa. yeah, to 4,000 4, to like 2,000 BC. Um, somewhere, somewhere around that age, it's an entire like city or like a, a town that was built that had a this rock wall. It's you can think of a peninsula around valleys. It's like a this kind of like flat plateau next to these valleys, um, and it they built a wall, but this wall was like kind of big monolith. Um, is that what those are called? The big rocks monoliths. Yeah. Monoliths, and they kind of had like a clear border to that town, but one, but within that rock uh, wall that isn't actually like you can walk through the between between the rocks. Um, there's a huge Stonehenge, and within that is a smaller circle that's like completely made out of some, like smaller rocks. That within that is a tomb um, that has been I think sacked like I don't know who knows when right over the past like two three thousand four thousand years um, and there's actually a few I think there's a few smaller ones as well so I think the people were saying that's probably tied to um, you know someone of, of great status was like buried in that and then perhaps the rock wall of that city was built around his tomb and then after that the city was developed around it um, it's, it's seriously fascinating and I'm so surprised, like, you know, I was even surprised as an Armenian that I didn't know about this place and it's, and it's older than, than most other like circular Stonehenge, uh, constructions. Mm -hmm. There's even, there's an interesting, uh, aspect to it that these monoliths have, have big, like, I'd say, um, like 20 centimeter in diameter, like circles just carved straight through. Um, and you know, people were trying to figure out, oh, is, are these, you know, perhaps viewing points towards ast astronomical sites or, uh, you know, another theory is like these are what they were using to carry these rocks and stones uh, to their locations. Um, I don't think they were able to find any kind of like astronomical uh, connections there, but there's, you know, great mysteries that are still around. And, and, and it's, it was amazing to go to this place and to, 
again, I guess to touch these rocks and to scan them. And yeah, I had a great summer last summer. <laughs> you did. No. Um, maybe pivoting slightly more towards uh, what Depp, uh, you know, has been doing. And maybe you can tell us more about your experience with photogametry. I think there is some kind of house you wanted to show, right? I'm not oh, sure if it's that's possible. Sure, that's not with photogrammetry, but that um, it, it's kind of going off this multiplicity of ideas. So I sent you guys a link about um, this house plan that I drew up. What, what are we seeing here? So this is a house plan that I just randomly drew up, and I want you to use your current knowledge of houses to draw me this house. We got kitchen, hmm. bedroom two, bedroom so one. This, you gave us a top-down view of a house, and I'm guessing the point that you're going to make is actually I don't know what the point that you're trying. To make. I'm also very <laughs> curious. Well, we'll see if it works or not. Usually it works, so we'll, we'll find out. I'm actually terrible with drawing. Peter's house is way worse than Deb's. <laughs> uh, I agree fully, and I'm ashamed. I'm deleting it. It's like a yellow. Yeah, it just looks like a yellow box. <laughs> yellow boxes on the street side. Yellow boxes made of tiki taki. <sighs> what is that song? Yeah, Don't you know it? And they all look just the same. There's a green one and a blue one and a red one and lay one. And they all look like tiki taki <laughs> and they all look just the same. <laughs> it's I think from Peter, the series. Please come Weed. and sing me lullabies <laughs> as I'm going to sleep. <laughs> this is beautiful. I think you won't be able to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, uh, her right. drawing skills are way better. Yes. Well, I think you've given up. So um, essentially, what this is is showing that there's multiplicity of values, and we really re need to remember this for the ancient world. So most of the time, you look at the archaeological site. Oh, I think that hand's not showing. All you get is um, that sort of plan of the site. Mm -hmm. But when, when, you're, when you're trying to reconstruct it, you're trying to make something like this. And I think that's one of the biggest powers of VR. Yes. Is that you can show my version of house, your version of house, your version of house, whoever wants to draw a house, and we can show that in different ways inside the virtual environment. So that way you don't really get the sense that there is one correct version. So you want to basically okay, take a blueprint uh, of history and then make people, you know, recreate it in VR and just see how well those blueprints actually, you know, resemble and uh, create the idea in my head that I can imagine how this house looked like, right? So you want to make history more personal. Yeah, kind of. But uh, so when you look at the archaeological evidence, people write tons and tons about the things that they found and. Um, what these things may have looked like. Um, so I'm doing the Temple of Mithras at Karbrock, and one of my favorite lines from the archaeological report, he says, um, the, the use of colors can be shown by this piece of wall cluster that we saw that was red and green, but we don't know the pattern. And I was like, well, that's great. Yeah. So I could basically have five different people draw some sort of wall in a pattern of red and green and just have it there. <laughs> True, but um, I mean, if we don't have more information than that, um, how would you approach it? I think that really depends. So when you go to a museum, um, a lot of times you don't know the provenances of objects. So I see this a lot with Egyptian um, stuff more than I do with other things. Uh, and you, you don't know where it came from. You don't know what time period it is. You don't know sort of how it got into the museum. And I think, oh, no, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. What was your question? So if we don't have enough information, how would you approach it then? So just basically, instead yeah, of so projecting the thoughts into the people's minds that you, that you as a museum has this kind of knowledge, you would rather uh, actually, you know, say, okay, we don't have enough information. Try to paint it in your head. That's what we basically do also. We just have a little bit more experience. Yeah, I definitely think that um, like things about provenances are something that can we really recreate them? And that was actually a question I wanted to ask you guys and what you thought about that. Um, because if you, uh, one of the objects I first saw in a museum was a baby bottle. Ooh. And it was inside this other, uh, inside this glass case with like 
50 other different types of um, pottery. And I was like, but I have no idea where this is from. I don't know what mm. kind of it is. It said, it's either Greek or Roman. And I was like, mm. that's not helpful. No. Like, how would they use it? <laughs> what are they and so doing? I don't think you can necessarily <laughs> reconstruct that because you don't know anything about it. So would you rather not mm. display so like, don't even... uh Yeah. Or no, perhaps not go down, not try to attempt to, you know, put it into context or like try to extrapolate what, how it was used, who used it. You know, if you don't know, you probably shouldn't say that you do. Is that? Yeah, because I think like one of my favorite lines that I use is like, um, in, inside of a museum, the objects there are spatially and temporally decontextualized. So um, one of my favorite museums here to show this is, um, can you Google or should I Google um, the Hunterian Museum at the University of Glasgow? I can, I can pull it up. Um, okay, thanks. Um, and it has, one of the first exhibits on it is um, like the, the last frontiers of the Roman Empire, which is in Scotland, uh, of the Einstein Wall. And there, the Antonine Wall was 37 miles long, oh. but you're inside this room that is cramped that up. Is room time. And that, you can't really see that there are 30 splits. You can go down. Jesus Christ, these are like humans in vats. <laughs> Welcome to the Hunterian. Yeah, um, I've never seen that. So I don't know. Holy shit, these are like preserved parts of human beings? Mm -hmm. and, I have no idea. Like, I just look at the Rome stuff. And, and skips uh, it as a creep. He did a lot of medical things. Yeah, he did a lot of medical things, and has a very, let's say, eclectic collection. Um, he also served on the um, uh, Roman. 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 Oh, yes. It looks more and, yeah, in context. So, <laughs> so inside this room, if you go up to the first picture that you see, uh -huh. Or the second one is probably a little bit better. So the Einstein Wall was 37 miles along across Scotland from the Firth of Forth to the Firth of Clyde. Um, and inside the Hunterian is in this teeny room. And I think when you look at that, you can't tell that there's 37 miles of distance from the distant slab, which is on the right side, and then another slab that's over on this side. And you can't really tell where it was found or um, sort of the spatial location of it. They do have one tiny map um, on uh, at, on the signpost there. That's but not that's enough. It. Yeah, it's kind of very misleading, right? In a sense. Yeah, so I think so. I think when you're looking at that sort of thing, this is really where like um, virtual reality or even just tabletop displays and any sort of digital media that you can use in this museum. I mean, this is a really small space, so you can maybe use some screens and sort of have a projection of how the site looks today, and sort of like, I mean, one of the stones was found at uh, Bridge Nest, and it was recently published because someone is doing a study on the colors of the end time stones, and they found uh, <coughs> there was like blood red on the neck that was severed off by the Roman horsemen, mm. um, which, and they thought, that's, that's great news, because we didn't know that before, um, kind of. And I think if you use sort of a digital technology to sort of like, you can use a 3D model to recreate the site. And then um, you can also sort of do a, an image of what it looks like today, but sort of just on a screen. And I think that would really help sort of replace some of the objects. But then in other objects, that's you, like a pin. You don't know who wore the pin. You don't know who would have used the pin. So is it really necessary to actually recreate that? True. Interesting. Um, I think uh, to kind of to kind of start wrapping things up, uh, Peter, you were talking about uh, you were asking about the some of the destroyed churches in Germany. Yes. That was actually a, a very and also some of the museums in Berlin. They haven't been uh, rebuilt after World World War Two, where you know there was like an actual battle that happened within because yeah the museums are in like Mitte which is in the middle of Berlin uh lots of government buildings there and so there was clearly like a war that happened within these museums um 
and they never they didn't really try to reconstruct and rebuild or try to like you know hide that particular aspect of it to the point that i don't know if i've talked about this before where i really love the fact that like if a part of a historic building is destroyed don't the the way they rebuilt it was not trying to actually follow the architecture in the same style and the same thing they were just like completely built like a very modern side to that building and in a way to not confuse you into thinking oh like you know this is exactly what it's looked like for the past you know however many hundred years this is no this is we're not gonna fool you into believing that um they i I actually really respected that kind of like philosophy to it because i mean Me I've, I've been to you know in, in places in armenia when um like the temple of Gandhi was was uh fell down in in one of the uh in a in an earthquake in the past uh, couple decades and they reconstructed it and kind of i they had to like re put some stones back together um some of the old some of the restored places in armenia like they they basically just try to fool you into thinking that this is what the rocks are you know these are the ancient things it's, and and i really like love that aspect in germany that they didn't subscribe to that way of thinking um yeah do you, was that kind of like along the same lines yes absolutely i i i feel the same in a sense um you always um you know have different opinions regards how you should make a museum whether you should restore something or not but i think that the decision was here kind of easier to choose not to restore it but keep it because it's basically an echo from the past you're walking there and you see those holes in the walls from uh, the shelves you on the bundestag so the main building from where the politicians are still sitting today right you still have those words written by the russian soldiers on top of it when you go onto the roof mm -hmm. and it's kind of you know having this echo from the past and giving you you, you know the feeling that this place has a history it's not preserved mm -hmm. but it's living germany then from then any other place that i've ever been to is the most acknowledging of its like you know not and not it's acknowledging of its not positive history and perhaps you know yes. that wasn't a voluntary thing you know like to some extent it, it wasn't, wasn't but, but it's still good but, but there's a good amount of like actual like it's a part of their culture at this point and it's and it's something that i've never seen any other culture really do or accept like every culture it just talks about them being victors them being you know like amazing at everything that we've done and you know i'm sure armenians to a certain extent too you know whatever faults we, we have but um yeah it's a fascinating it's a fascinating part of of germany yeah and that's why everyone is so skeptical of germany because in a sense um the most intellectual people in germany are always basically projecting the idea you know the world is one place there should be no government we should you know basically there's a movement in the german culture to say okay fuck germany it's basically something that young mm. people usually say they're against the idea um, for different reasons to have a government they want you know to borders to break up and i guess for every other country out there like france or us or even armenia i guess too in a sense it's uh, it sounds very suspicious because they usually are very proud of their history and the history is usually very yeah. Either they were the victim or they won, but it's not right. like this is right. our past. Exactly, we are you're not either happy about it. Totally, that's a very, very good point. You're either total victims or you're the total victors. There's no like, ah, oh, we kind of did some bad things, and and we're actually going to acknowledge it a lot. You know. Um, yes. Yeah, I wonder if if Japan is, is is like kind of views things similarly, or I guess I've never really seen that. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think, Deb? <laughs> Sorry, well, about well, we, let's go back to the German German buildings yeah. uh, in terms of restoration um, okay. of old buildings. Okay, so I think with restoration of the buildings, it is really fascinating that you keep the history there. Um, so I've drawn sort of the Parthenon and a couple of its phases, um, and so that really reminds me of sort of like so the Parthenon was this temple to Athena, but at one point it had a minaret on it. And then another point, oh. I think it was used as a storage mm. for um, like arm, arms and armory, that sort of thing, or gunpowder or something. And sort of like if they were to fully reconstruct the Parthenon, what phase would they do that at? And so I think the idea of like keeping like each part of that history inside of Germany is, is a really interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So before um, we wrap up things, yeah. uh, maybe there is some other last thoughts that you would like to share with the audience, Deb? Um, I mean, so my research is basically on 
multisensory effects inside of VR. So I don't really necessarily do a lot with half the stuff we've been talking about. So, um, but but I think VR is a really great medium for archaeology in the sense that you can sort of recreate this multisensory experience, especially like with the Temple of Mithras, it had been a very sensorial embodied experience. And I think it's a great way to sort of show off, um, not show off, but to, oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> VR is a great way to go in, yeah, to, to, to go into a, a spot that we don't really know a lot about, but we know sort of like when you do Mithraism, like um, the initiates would have been naked and they would have been standing in this dark cave, which is a temple. Um, and and they would have gone through these terrible trials. Like we see depictions of them on the walls of like someone shooting a bow and arrow at them, or someone taking a sword and cutting them, or someone maybe putting a torch on the initiate space. And so it's like in VR you can sort of recreate the sort of like spooky sensation and use use all these sensory things. Um, and trying to recreate the past that way, but also recognizing that we can never fully recreate the past because the meaning is um, culturally constructed. Mm. That's Wonderful. a fair point. And on that note, Deb, uh, Deb, how can people find you and contact you or find out more about your work? Um, so you can contact me on the Discord channel, <laughs> um, or you can contact me at Let's see, what's my my Twitter is devmares24 or my email is, or is dmayers340 at gmail.com. Or you can go onto my website if you forget all that, just devmares.com. See the work that I do and sort of see me around on Twitter, that sort of thing. Sweet. Awesome. And Yay. you can find us on at, on Twitter at ResearchVRCast. Um, and if you can leave us a review on iTunes, actually, that would be super, super oh, yes. awesome. Um, we I, I don't think we've had one uh, recently. And so if you guys can, it'll help us boost uh, our rankings on the actual, you know, on, on the podcast lists. Um, so that would be amazing. And also, if you, we mentioned this earlier, we have, do have a Patreon now. And if you um, like this podcast and like listening to the, the topics and the guests that we feature and want to support us uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon we have multiple tiers starting at $2 only $2 a month it's like buying me oh. half a no it's half a cup of coffee in, in, in San Francisco oh. <laughs> you can buy me an espresso um, so that would be awesome thank you Deb again for joining us this has been a fascinating conversation yeah, great thanks for having me on absolutely and uh, thank you Peter for joining thank you yay for thank listening. you for hosting yay let's all thank them we're pat each other on the back <laughs> yeah wait high five 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 <laughs> all right guys thanks all for listening and uh we'll see you guys next time goodbye